Last weekend, I asked you to pray for a very important meeting that was held yesterday morning, a meeting that would have a great role to play in our search for Joshua, the next lead pastor of this congregation. We convened approximately 50 of our leaders yesterday morning. They spent time listening as the candidate for my successor led in a devotional, led us in worship, led us to the Lord's table. Then he and his wife answered strategic questions for about an hour. After that, we sent them home, and we sent everybody in that large group to a different area in the church where their assignment was to spend one hour in prayer simply asking God the question, is this person the person for whom we've been looking, or is it somebody else? After one hour of prayer, that 50-some group came back together, and without any discussion, they were handed a ballot with a simple yes or no response to the question. We had sent the threshold for approval at 80%. Little did we know that once again it would be a unanimous approval, and it was very, very obvious that God was in the mix and God was answering prayer. Throughout the interview process, things became so very clear. Uh, this, This gentleman was slated to be the lead pastor in another very large church, and God spoke to him and said, I want you to be lead pastor but it's not here. Are you willing to accept it somewhere else? He said candidly, it took him three months of struggling before he was willing to say, yes, Lord, I'm willing for it to be elsewhere. And six days after he recorded that in his journal, Slingshot, our search firm, contacted him about the opening at ACAC. These are not coincidences. These are what happen when God's people pray. Next week, we'll give a formal introduction. He's got to shoot a video. You'll see his face. You'll know his name. You'll become familiar with his family. And then the week after that, they're going to start attending, even though he's not going to officially onboard until the first of the new year. Then once he onboards, we'll do about a 10-month or so transition. To use a biblical phrase, he will increase and I will decrease. I'll just keep handing him more and more duties, helping him through the transition. And we already, he and I, have a wonderful wonderful relationship. He's very secure. He's not at all threatened. He said, Rock, if God would lead me here, I would want you to mentor me. I'd want you to stay. I want you to do some of the preaching. Are you open to that? And I said, for the right amount of money, I'm open to anything. Seriously, I said yes, because I never planned to leave ACAC. I just want to be, I told him, your biggest supporter as my pastor. And we already have a wonderful chemistry. So you're going to meet him through the video next week and in the days ahead. But thank you for praying for what was a very transparent, very organized, God-honoring procedure, whereby God led us to a unanimous perception of his will for ACAC. I think you should be excited both about the process and the answer to prayer. Well, last week we resumed our study of the ancient book of Daniel that is so relevant for believers living in a corrupt culture. And I said that its final six chapters record prophetic visions 
of what at the time were a future event, but now are long behind us. But it also records visions of events that still await us in the future. And together, those visions, those revelations, remind us that God sometimes, not all the time, but God sometimes gives His people advance notice of hard times that await them. He knows if we have a heads up for our Creator, we'll be able to face those hard times with confidence and with hope. But advanced knowledge of hard times doesn't automatically birth confidence and hope, even when God reveals the final outcome, because we intuitively know the time between where we are and that final outcome may be a very hard and very challenging time. And so sometimes knowledge of what lies ahead can leave us feeling a bit overwhelmed. And that's what happened to the usually confident Daniel. The things that God revealed to Daniel concerning the near future that awaited his people, Israel, and concerning the far-off future that still awaits the church, shook him to the core. It left him, in his own words, exhausted and sick for days. Now, thankfully, Daniel didn't do something that we're frequently tempted to do in moments like that. Daniel didn't surrender the future condition of his soul to his momentary condition in life. He took steps to ensure it would only be momentary. He didn't surrender his destiny to his current discouragement. Instead, Daniel said, so I got up and I carried on the king's business, small k, the king's business. But Daniel didn't stop there. He did something far more beneficial than simply manning up and pressing forward. And today we're going to look at what Daniel did because it has a lot to offer us. To get us started, I want to read Daniel's words as they're recorded in the ninth chapter of the book that bears his name, the third verse. It's very brief. Daniel said, So I gave my attention to the Lord God to seek Him by prayer. I've entitled today's teaching, Give Your Attention to the Lord. Will you say that with me? Give your attention to the Lord. Let's pray together. Father, in these coming moments, we want to do exactly that. We want to give our attention to you. We'll need the assistance of your Holy Spirit to do that, and so we ask for that openly. Father, I'll need the assistance of your Spirit to preach and teach accurately and faithfully. We'll all need the assistance of your Spirit in order to understand what you're saying to us and put it into application. And so, as always, I pray, Spirit of the living God, fall fresh on us. We want to experience what you have ordered for us today. And Father, we pray these things with confidence because you have revealed your good and loving heart to us. And as always, we pray them in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. And as we listen for God's voice to us today, may the Lord be with you. 
Daniel's response to God's disconcerting revelations about the future reminds us that faith often rises or falls on the basis of where we focus our attention. And Daniel understood that. In chapter 9, he said to his people, the people of Israel, the calamity that has come upon you is the result of misplaced focus. Here's how he put it. You failed to give your attention to God's truth. Instead, you gave your attention to the lies of other surrounding cultures, idol-worshiping cultures. Now, the people of Israel weren't the first to make that mistake, and they would hardly be the last. Scripture and history join voices and testify to the fact that God's people can and often do shift their focus away from God. Now, sometimes when we shift our focus away from God, it's intentional. You say, why would we ever do that intentionally? If you're wrestling with God over something He wants you to do, or something He wants you to let go of, or something He wants you to engage, and you're not ready for that, and you know you're in a wrestling match with God, well, in those moments, you don't generally want to give Him a lot of attention because you know what He has to say to you runs contrary to what you want to do. So sometimes we shift our focus away from God, and it's intentional. But I suspect the majority of the times it's not intentional, instead it's accidental. We live in a culture where knowledge is exploding. And Daniel prophesied that in his final chapters. He said one of the signs that the end is approaching will be an explosion, an explosion of knowledge in the world. And we're seeing that in our lifetime. That's statistically being proven and borne out. And when you're in a culture of exploding knowledge and mass communication, it tends to produce produce a diminished attention span. They now tell us we're good for about 20 seconds. And it also tends to offer us a whole host of unending distractions. Now, some of the things that would distract us from focusing on God are good in and of themselves. Our focus on family, our focus on friends, our focus on our work, our focus on our community, our focus on the kingdom of God. These things, while good in and of themselves, can become distractions if we're so focused on them that we fail to focus on God at the same time. But most of the things that pull our focus away from God are negative. They're cultural factors, things that are hostile to our faith. I'm talking about the unending appeals of a culture that is consistently materialistic, overly sexualized, addicted to entertainment, enslaved to emotions, and deeply, deeply polarized. That's the culture that bombards us day and night and night and day. And when you add to the constant appeals of that culture the unrelenting attacks of what Paul called spiritual principalities and powers, you have a potent and deadly mix. Because of all that, if we aren't vigilant in keeping our focus on God, giving God our attention, 
We can easily be diverted to things that distract us from God and disrupt our devotion to God. Now, another dynamic that leads to being distracted from God is this. The things that draw our focus away from God shout for our attention, while the God who deserves our attention waits for it quietly. And sadly, we are suckers for volume. We are drawn drawn to the loudest voices in the room. So for these and other reasons, giving attention to God is never automatic and it's never accidental. It's the result of wisdom and intentional action on our part. Now Daniel took that kind of action. His own words said, I gave my attention to the Lord so that I could seek him by prayer. Daniel commanded his focus. And his words reflect where he commanded it. He described God as Lord God. The word Lord is an important word. It speaks to God's sovereignty over everything in the world. And then Daniel said it again, but the second time he said, the Lord, my God, he reaffirmed God's sovereignty over his own heart. And both of those things were essential because it's easier to focus on a big God than a small one, especially when you know he's your God. Now, Daniel next gave his attention to God's character. For good reason, the knowledge of God's character is always the starting point for hope. If you want your hopes to be strong, if you want your hopes to be enduring, you have to ground them in God's unchanging character, not the circumstances of the moment. You have to ground them in God's character more than grounding them in God's promises. And I say that because if God's character is no good, his promises are no good. If his character is good, his promises are God's good. Are good. So God's character is always the starting point for hope. What did Daniel focus on from God's character? The two things Satan consistently attacks, God's goodness and God's faithfulness. And I say Satan attacks those things because what do you often hear in our culture? How could a good and loving God fill in the blank? Satan knows if he can erode our confidence in God's goodness and faithfulness, he has won the battle. So Daniel specifically focused on God's goodness and faithfulness. And he addressed God as the one who keeps his covenant and keeps his loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Remember, Jesus said you can never divide those two things. Those who love God are those who keep his commandments. There is no such thing as a disobedient love for God. Now, having focused his attention on God's character... Daniel began to pray for his people and how they would survive the tough years ahead. And his prayer offers what I would like to suggest is a much-needed corrective to a very ugly tendency that we are seeing in many places in the American church. As Daniel prayed for his people, he spent the bulk of his time confessing their frequent, stubborn, repeated sins. And where sin was concerned, God doesn't mumble and Daniel didn't mumble. He didn't make lame excuses for his people. He didn't minimize what they had done. 
He didn't affirm them in their disobedience. He didn't blame the surrounding nations. He didn't blame God. And even though Daniel himself had not participated in the sins of his people, he identified with them because as he prayed, here are the pronouns he used. He used the pronouns we and us and our and all. He didn't use the pronoun they or you. He didn't say you guys have sinned. He said we have sinned. He didn't say you screwed up and rebelled. He said we have rebelled. He said we have ignored the prophets. I counted in the space of just 11 verses, Daniel uses the word we, us, our, and all 32 times. Now what does that say to us? Why would Daniel pray we When Daniel had been faithful, even when confronted with life-or-death ultimatums, adversarial rulers, and the promise of one night's lodging in a lion's den, why would a man who had been faithful in the face of all those things say, we have sinned? Here's why. Daniel knew he was part of something bigger than himself. He was one of God's people. And even though most of the others of God's people had acted in disappointing fashion, inexcusable fashion, some of them had not. His three close friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they hadn't acted badly. They hadn't compromised. They were willing to go into a fiery furnace rather than compromise their devotion to God. And they weren't alone. I'm sure there were a host of Israelis who remain unnamed, who never bowed their knee to foreign idols. But even those who had failed to obey God were still God's covenant people, and God never violates His covenants. That's why He says, if you're unfaithful, I'll remain faithful because I can't deny myself and I can't violate my covenants and I can't break my promises and I can't break my word. So God was going to severely discipline them, but He would never, never disown them. If you want to get a better handle on that, A lot of families have seen a member of their family fall into the demonic trap of addiction. And if you're one of those families or you know one of those families, you know once an addiction takes hold in a person's life, the addiction basically replaces their heart. And they can do unimaginable things. They can lie to you, they will. They can steal from you, they will. They can betray you, they will. The addiction takes the place of their heart. And when that's going on, you may have to practice tough love. You may have to cut off the money. You may have to say you're going to have to move out. You may have to say you're not welcome to participate in this event. But the thing you don't do is you don't disown them. You don't write them off. You don't totally abandon them. Why? Because they're family. Well, Daniel understood he was a part of God's family. And even though there were people in that family who were in addiction to sin, who were acting badly, God was not about to disown them. Daniel knew, I'm a part of them. He prayed, we, not them. He prayed for those who had failed. And here's what I want you to notice. He didn't pray in a condescending fashion. He didn't say, oh, God, help those pathetic losers. 
He didn't pray like a Pharisee, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that. He didn't use them language. He used we language. Now, as I said earlier, there is a much-needed corrective embedded in Daniel's prayers. It's a correction needed by a growing number of believers in this culture. And I make that suggestion because I hear these days lots of comments. And I read numerous articles and blogs and social media postings that seem to indicate a growing number of believers in this nation have forgotten something. They have forgotten that as Jesus' followers, we are part of something bigger than ourselves. We are a part of the church, a group of people with whom God has made an eternal covenant. We are the new covenant people of God. We are the body of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And I stress that because I increasingly hear and read comments that some believers fancy themselves too woke too enlightened, too discerning to be lumped in with the rest of the losers in the church. Now, they wouldn't generally say it in those words, but they generally say it. They act as if there is a caste system within the body of Christ. Through their constant critiques, their condemning comments, they show an unwillingness to identify with believers that they judge to be inferior to themselves in devotion. They speak of the church as if they're not part of it. They criticize the church as if they are not a part of it. And I often wish I could just pull these folks aside and say, you act like you're embarrassed to be a part of the church. When Jesus returns for his church, are you got to act like you're embarrassed to be a part of it then? Or you got to say, hey, don't forget me, I'm part of this. Because if you want to be seen as a part of it then, then you should want to be seen as a part of it now despite its flaws. Because you're part of something bigger than you that started before you, that will continue after you've breathed your last here. I'm tired of folks who constantly pray for the church using the pronoun them instead of the pronoun we. Now, this attitude evidences itself in the constant focus now on the real or imaginary feelings of God, failings, excuse me, of God's people that has become a specialty for some. Every new revelation of some moral failure, some inappropriate political entanglement, some prejudice, some injustice is received and reported with the obvious delight of a political operative who has uncovered some dirt on their opponent. The past and present shortcomings of the church are reported with an obvious zeal, with harsh harsh denunciations, and with sweeping generalizations that lump vast numbers of believers together. How many of you know generalizations are for the intellectually lazy? People who make statements like, all of them, they, as if everybody they have labeled is identical. That's intellectual laziness. It's also dishonesty. And generally it's accompanied by arrogance. You hear a lot of that happening in America. The term evangelical used to mean people who believed in the evangel. They believed that the gospel was given by God and all the world needs it. 
Now the term has become so politicized, I don't, I don't know what it means anymore. But you, you hear people say, those evangelicals, you evangelicals, or now some of them get cute, they call us evangelicals. <laughs> Almost sounds like a flavor of jello, evangelicals. As if evangelicals are all the same. I hope you know there are white evangelicals, there are black evangelicals, there are Hispanic evangelicals, there are Asian evangelicals, there are natural-born evangelicals, and there are immigrant evangelicals, young evangelicals, old evangelicals, Republican evangelicals, Democrat evangelicals, liberal evangelicals, thoroughly confused evangelicals. (laughs) Why do we say things like, evangelicals. If I would stand up here and say blacks, if I would say Hispanics, if I would say Asians, if I would say whites, you'd say, come on. That's not accurate. Why is that accurate when we're talking about the people of God? Why is it accurate when we're talking about the church? The reality is sometimes it feels that for some folks, Their godliness is measured by the frequency with which they refer to Jesus' future bride, the church, as a hot mess and a hopeless loser. And I'm not exaggerating if you listen. And I feel confident in suggesting we didn't get to this place because we were giving our attention to God. I'd like to suggest... We've gotten to this place because we've done something Paul warned us about. We gave place to the enemy. Because if you aren't giving your attention to God, you will give place to the enemy. You'll open the door for the enemy to establish some presence in your life and in your thinking. And I think we've opened the door and given place to what is now a phenomenon in this culture that is referred to as outrage culture. Outrage culture is essentially the belief that we prove our worth, prove our woke status, prove our merit, primarily by calling out evil in other people and doing it in public. And the more we condemn, the more virtuous we fancy ourselves. And once again, volume comes into play. The loudest voices deem themselves the most virtuous of all. I'd like to suggest that outrage culture is a demonic fraud, a demonic counterfeit of holiness and righteousness. Because outrage culture is an exercise in smug self-righteousness, and it's a cheap substitute for constructive action and true holiness. And it has no place in the church. No place in the church. Here's why. Virtue isn't demonstrated in pointing out the evil in others. It's evidence when we confess the sin we find in ourselves. It takes nothing to constantly talk about their sins. It takes God to get honest about your own sins. And I'm growing weary of people You know what my dad used to say to me? When you point your finger at somebody, remember there are three fingers pointing back at you. Virtue is 
evidenced by corporate, we, confession and humility, not individual arrogance, not a new Phariseeism that says, I thank God I'm not like the others. When Daniel gave his attention to God, he humbly identified with God's broken people. And he prayed for their improvement. He didn't celebrate their failure. And that focus led him to recognize that all of us had contributed to the failings of God's people. Everybody in this room has contributed to the failings of God's people, without exception and, frankly, far more than we realize and would be comfortable acknowledging. I I, I get tired of people's misguided efforts to somehow imply that certain ethnicity, certain political orientation or whatever is why we've got so much sin in our culture. My Bible said years ago, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Throughout history, some have had more opportunity to sin. Some have sinned in ways that had a more devastating impact upon other human beings. I'm a student of history. I get all that. But the bottom line is still all have sinned. And when you're constantly pointing out how they have sinned and forgetting how you are a part of the all, honey, you are not part of the solution. You are part of the problem. All have sinned. Have whites sinned against blacks and other minorities in America? Absolutely. In horrific fashion. But I've been to Africa where I've watched blacks sin against blacks. I've been in the Pacific Rim where I've watched Asians sin against Asians. When the Alliance put a Korean pastor in Tokyo, Japan, the Tokyo believers broke relationship with the Alliance for 30 years because of their hatred for Koreans. All have sinned. All have sinned. And the people who will make a difference is not those who go around trying to calculate what percentage is this group's contribution and what percentage is this group's contribution and who sinned more but the people who focus on eradicating sin in their own life so that they can be a part of eradicating it in the world. God, help us. There are few things uglier than self-righteousness. All of us have contributed. Now, it should come as no surprise. When Daniel responded to God, God responded to Daniel. Have you noticed God does that? But God's response had a surprise in it. The angel that was sent to talk to Daniel, Gabriel, said, Daniel, the very first time you prayed, God heard you and started the answer on its way. But it hasn't arrived until now because on the way, I encountered spiritual opposition. And it was greater than what I could deal with alone. I actually needed to call in some help. And that's why it's taken me a while to get to you. But you were heard the first time you prayed. And it's a reminder that God answers our prayers long, long before we think he's answered our prayers. If the answer appears to be on hold, have you noticed what we do? We assume the problem's with us. Well, I must not have enough faith. That's a classic. 
There must be some hidden sin in my life. That's a classic. Or this one, I hear this a lot. There's something God wants me to learn, and until I learn it, the answer won't come. As if God plays 40 questions with His people. God is not a clown, and He's not a game show host. If God wants you to know something, you know what He'll do? He'll tell you. He won't play, is this it? Ooh. Is it under shell number three? No. It's over here. Now, see, we always want to interpret the delay in terms of ourselves. It's not always about us. Daniel had done everything right. Everything right. Why did it take a while for the answer to get to him? Because there were other players involved and God had to deal with them before the answer could be revealed. And when you're waiting for an answer, don't start beating yourself up. Remember, the answer was sent the first time you prayed, but there's probably more involved in it than you know, and God's taken care of business. And when God's done taking care of business, the answer will appear. But it was sent a long time ago. Well, in a time of great uncertainty and soul anguish, Daniel not only got up and did the king's business, small K, he got up and did the capital K, king of king's business. He gave his attention to God. And in closing, I just want to remind you, that's what you and I need to do. If we're going to serve God well in our generation, we've got to give our attention to God. And I want you to do a little exercise with me in closing. I want you to hold your thumb about 18 inches out in front of your nose. And I want you to put your thumb directly between your line of vision and me. Now I want you to focus right on your thumb. And as you focus on your thumb... I'm just a blurry piece of background, which is when I'm at my best. (laughs) But now I want you to focus on me. Just focus on me. What happens? It's almost like your thumb is transparent, like you're looking directly through it, not seeing the thumb, but seeing me. When we focus on hard times at hand, God becomes distant and blurry. When we give our attention to God, the things close at hand look like things we're going to pass through because they are. God didn't say, God didn't say when you pass through the fire, you'll be consumed. He didn't say when you pass through the flood, you'll be overwhelmed. He said, when you pass through, you will pass through. If we give our attention to God, not outrage culture, not answers that are not answers, but just more problems, then we'll be able to effectively serve God in our generation. Will you pray with me to that end? Gracious Heavenly Father, my dear mother used to say when you sling mud, you just lose ground. And I pray that you'll help your church in this nation see that there's more to following Jesus than just finding the faults of others. The true righteousness prays we prayers, engages corporate confession, and sees itself as part of the problem. Lord, help us to emulate Daniel, not the woke people of our generation. And I pray that so that we can make a difference in Jesus' name. Amen.